There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. A brand new style has arrived at Yumiko. The Camilla is a stunning high neck Leo boasting an open wrap back and front mesh chest panel. This latest creation by Yumiko Takashima has more modern flair for a standout look. And for this month only, enjoy a 15% off introductory rate on all ready to wear and custom orders. Yumiko is also excited to continue its virtual shopping events through Instagram Live. Two hosts showcase exclusive in-store options available to ship immediately, with different promotions offered each session. All three regions, Berlin, Tokyo, and New York City, have scheduled events for September, and if you haven't tuned in yet, be sure to check them out. Stay connected for new releases, events, and all things Yumiko at yumiko.com and at yumiko on Instagram. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today, we welcome our first conductor to the podcast, Ming Luke. Ming holds a Master's of Fine Arts in Conducting from Carnegie Mellon University and a Bachelor of Music in Music Education and Piano Pedagogy from Westminster Choir College of Ryder University. With a background in ballet himself, Ming has conducted for ballet performances around the world. He is currently serving as music director for the Merced Symphony and Berkeley Community Chorus and Orchestra. He's the associate conductor for the Berkeley Symphony, principal guest conductor for the San Francisco Ballet, and principal conductor of the Nashville Ballet. While live theater remains on hiatus due to COVID-19, Ming has started an online series called Musical Points a virtual in-depth exploration of how movement and music work together in some of the most beloved ballets in the repertoire. Upcoming programming includes Romeo and Juliet on Saturday, September 26th, The Winter's Tale on October 3rd, and The Nutcracker on October 10th. All events are at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern. Access to these conversations are free. Register for access on his website, mingluke.com. 
Ming, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really looking forward to speaking with you. Thank you for having me. I'm looking yeah. forward to it. We were talking before that we haven't had a conductor on the podcast before, and we don't know why, and we're really excited <laughs> uh, to speak about all of that today. So we just want to get started at the beginning and hear a little bit about how you first became interested in music and in dance. Uh, I think my parents have the first story about me and music. Um, mm -hmm. Apparently, we went to a wedding when I was three mm -hmm. or so. And they had a little string quartet at the reception. And this, the story goes that I was sitting in front of the string quartet for about 90 minutes during the entire oh, yeah. reception. And it was at that point that they knew they were in trouble. So <laughs> <laughs> That's really amazing to have that kind of focus and attention on that. How cool. Yeah, and I have kids now. So, you know, now that seems even more ludicrous of a story. But uh -huh. <laughs> So was it shortly thereafter that you, your parents um, involved you in music somehow? Yeah, we all started piano uh, together when I was mm -hmm. three, and uh, they were in their 30s, and they actually still have the same piano teacher today. Stop and it. so for this entire time, I guess I was one of the first te uh, students. I, we were the first students for, this, for our teacher. Yeah. And so uh, she sends me emails every now and then. It's been uh, it's very sweet. So your parents started taking piano with you? They hadn't played before? Yeah, they hadn't played before um, and just continued... I mean, they loved music, of course. My dad mm -hmm. and I used to listen to Bach, like, incessantly. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of actually playing music, I think my dad just played guitar, but formal music lessons were started with the piano. Right. That's so sweet. And you have a background in dance as well as a child, correct? Yeah. I, you know, it's a t very typical story. You know, the local uh, dance company, uh, dance school, mm -hmm. um, they didn't have a lot of guys. And I was mm -hmm. in theater quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And they said, look, we just, we need somebody, we need men to be able to partner and to, you know, be part of the school and everything. We'll give you free lessons if you, um, if you can just take classes and be with the girls and, you know, mm -hmm. start learning, partnering and all that kind of stuff. And being in theater, um, you know, dance is obviously an important part of musical theater. And that was before um, I actually ended up being in the pit. And so mm -hmm. before that, I was uh, performed in a lot of music theater, singing, and learning how to dance. And it's actually one of the things that got me interested in conducting to mm -hmm. begin with, hmm. because, you know, the connection between movement and music and really feeling it in your body, mm -hmm. um, I think was uh, something that I really connected to. Um, so later on, when I started a career in music, I always knew that conducting was something that I was interested in, and even more so than that, that ballet conducting was something that I was interested mm -hmm. in. Hmm. Wow. So were you taking exclusively ballet classes when you were dancing, or were you kind of experimenting with everything? No, it was, it was ballet, straight ballet, and mm -hmm. uh, it was the most fit I was in my life. You know, <laughs> if I ate a hamburger on Friday, I could feel it in class on Monday. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was one of those things where, um, you know, it was, it was, I was very much in, in the lifestyle. I mean, like, it wasn't... Um, too advanced, but, uh, um, you know, on a professional track or anything that, like that. But it was something that um, definitely um, was an important part of my life. Right. right. How did you find time for all these things? I mean, e each individual discipline that you just mentioned requires your full attention. So how were you evenly dividing uh, your attention among, among yeah. those things? Yeah. So, you know, you look back in high school and you're just like, you know, I was playing tennis at the same time, too. I don't know how oh that, that was possible. But, um, you know, as time went on, even within music, mm -hmm. I, was, I was performing as a pianist quite a bit, you know, uh, um, solo recitals, concerti, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But even trying to whittle down between conducting and piano was, 
was something that I had to um, decide among, you know, mm-hmm. decide uh, to do. And, you know, I think for conductors a lot of times, it's the same thing too. They tend to specialize in certain areas. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, when I started focusing more on conducting in undergraduate, that's when I started whittling down away from piano a little bit, whittling da- away from dancing mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, playing violin as well. You know, I, I started that very poorly, but um, <laughs> I think when you start to specialize a little bit, I think the thing that I, I refuse to do though, I refuse to sort of say that I'm only a ballet conductor or only an opera conductor mm-hmm. or symphonic because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously Tchaikovsky didn't write only ballets. Right. And, right. you know, if you know his opera, uh, operas um, and, you know, symphonies, then you know, then you have a deeper understanding of the ballets and vice versa. You know, if you know the mm-hmm. ballets and it informs you for the symphonies. So for conducting, I try to keep a pretty wide um, range of, of activities, but, um, yeah, I did have to uh, not focus as much time on piano, unfortunately, or, yeah. or dance. So, mm-hmm. Well, your parents were obviously very supportive starting piano classes with you, and they must have encouraged you to do all these different things. Did they play a big role in you just being able to explore any art form, or did they have one specific thought that they would have liked you to travel, a road to travel down? <laughs> I think, you know, for me, you know, I'm Asian, so I followed sort of this typical Asian path, which was uh, my, my dad's a mathematician, my mother's a scientist, oh my and goodness. I think that music was obviously a really important part. But mm-hmm. when I decided to go into music, they, they, of course, did support me, but it was a little bit furrowed eyebrows and saying, you know, <laughs> I wonder if this is going to last, how are you going to make a living, right. you know, all the typical things that parents do, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So what is it then, um, you know, you knew at a young age that you were interested in conducting, but what's a traditional path then for um, realizing that dream? You know, I, I just don't have a, an idea formed in my head. It's so easy to see, like, you're a musician and you go and you train in this way or a dancer trains in this way. But for a conductor, it's, is it sort of like a choreographer where um, is, is there a formal training or um, is it like learning on the fly? It's. A little bit in between. I mean, I shouldn't give away the biggest secret, but the biggest secret is that the hand waving is actually the easiest part. Really? Right? And you don't actually spend that much time, you know, learning too much of that. That's a few years practice. But the important part, of course, is just the preparation, the, um, the way you approach scores, the way you uh, communicate and collaborate with people. And so the most traditional path for conductors is really focusing on being a good musician first. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to have the audacity to take a leadership role, then you obviously need to know as much about the music as possible Mm -hmm. so that you are perceived as somebody that is tolerable on the podium because musicians obviously have a lot of opinions and uh, um, the stereotype is that you can lose an orchestra and the respect in like five seconds flat. Mm -hmm. And so it's oftentimes very difficult to uh, Mm -hmm. um, take that role. But there are conducting programs. They're they're graduate programs. There's very few, if any, and most people think it's not uh, advantageous to have an undergrad conducting degree. You have to learn an instrument or be a music historian or theorist or composer. Mm. Um, But then for grad school, only two years, you focus on the conducting and everything else is practical out of school, learning Mm -hmm. on the job. Right. 
Go, go ahead. You go. Yeah, it's I was, so interesting. It's I love so this. interesting. I have like a million <laughs> questions for you. Um, one thing that came to mind was you're talking about, you know, mastering being a musician. So you obviously studied piano very thoroughly. You mentioned the violin. Do you do some in-depth studying of all the other instruments as well? I mean, like you said, you're managing all these people. So what does that involve? Definitely, but not to learn how to play the instrument, mm-hmm. but really how they function and what their difficulties are. You know, it's the same thing as learning a variation. You know, you don't necessarily need to know how to dance it, um, but you need to know where the difficulties are, Mm -hmm. what is going to be death for them. Um, You know, horn players, brass players, you can show a lot of strength. And if you do that to a vocalist, it actually physically tightens up their throat, which is probably the worst possible thing. Mm -hmm. And so the way you work with singers and the gestures that you use um, are very different than when you work with... um, brass players. So string players, there's obviously so many more string players than there are oboes. Mm-hmm. And so their m- main function is to play together in the same way. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole hierarchy of leadership, you know, the concert master, the leader of each section, etc. But knowing that, and then knowing that they're going to try to play together more than they are going to be try to be exactly with you, mm-hmm. that sometimes they actually play a little bit behind you. Mm. Right. Oh. And so, you know, knowing that, but then also knowing that an oboe player is just two or three people, they're going to play primarily with you. So how do you actually get those things to line up, those instruments to play together? Right. And so it's more the psychology as well as the difficulties of the instrument. Um, if a horn, which is one of the hardest instruments to play, has a major solo, if you're in their face about it, um, that's going to be really uh, nerve wracking for them and they're mm-hmm. liable to make more mistakes. And so, right. you know, Richard Strauss had this great um, line. He says, never look at the trombones. It just encourages them. <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh-huh. And so there's all these little things, but you know, um, uh, how to get the best from the musicians to encourage the best. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it's, it's all, you don't necessarily need to know how to play instruments, but you do need to know very much how they work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I also am kind of wondering then, like, it's a much larger and more diverse family than like, uh, for a choreographer to to run the front of the room, you know, you have it's pretty binary, you just have male dancers and female dancers who have pretty specific tasks. And certainly within that you have like some people that are, you know, more of a classicist or some people that, you know, but it's like, a woodwind is not uh, a string, you know, it's like, it's, it's just, how do you maintain, um, I guess a level of respect from each, you know, I'm assuming that like, if you come into an orchestra as a conductor and you are a flautist, like the woodwinds, you know, are like excited about that or, but like you have to, no one's going to be everything to everyone. How do, how do you manage that as a leader? I think it's the same as being a teacher, you know, mm-hmm. how you can't win over every single student. And within every single orchestra, there's going to be someone that doesn't like you, you know. Um, and it's just managing that. And there's, there are conductors that the string players love mm-hmm. and the woodwinds and brass absolutely hate because there's no clarity, but the strings are, you know, they, mm-hmm. they feel like right. they're given a lot of direction or, the vi- or vice versa, where uh, the string players just, you know, like are, are not as, they're a little bit lukewarm about a certain conductor, but the winds and brass particularly really love a particular conductor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's just about function. You know, if 
your job, if their job is to play the music that's in front of them and to be part of the ensemble and to, you know, come out with their solos, be in tune with their woodwind player, with their other colleagues in the woodwind section, but also play with the strings, then your job as a conductor is to facilitate the music making, to create the best environment and to try to, you know, um, again, try to make the best music as possible. If you really are committed to your particular job, that's the thing that's going to win them over, I think, the most. Right. Um, because they all want to play, obviously, at their best. They want the best circumstances. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just about understanding, I think, what situations are what, whether it's completely practical. You have one rehearsal to put together an entire Pops concert. Right. Or it's the fact that, you know, the ballet master is, is snuck over the edge and said, hey, can you move this variation a little faster? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the, uh, the ballerina that's doing the variation is like, slower, slower. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the orchestra is hearing all this, like, what's going on and how do we combine and make the right, together? Right, right. I think it's just about figuring out, again, how to collaborate, make music in those mm -hmm. circumstances. And if you do that, you gain the respect of the orchestra and, you know, you do your job, they do their jobs and um, it's more of a collaboration than it is sort right. of a hierarchy. Sure, sure. It looks like you've done a lot of guesting with different orchestras as well. How is that a unique challenge, like you're saying, to you know, gain their respect and gain their trust in a short time when you're kind of new to the organization? Oh, it's completely different. Every single country has a different environment for their music and the uh -huh. orchestra. It's, I mean, London, for instance, England, they're renowned for the professional orchestras. You mm -hmm. go to make a recording with London Symphony Orchestra, it's a single take. They'll just sight read anything and just kind of lay it down wow. perfectly. You know? Wow. It's the rena they're renowned. You know, mm -hmm. in China or Russia, you know, the musicians are sponsored directly by the government mm -hmm. and um, they might have jobs. So sometimes they're incredibly uh, professional. Sometimes they're just doing it for the job. You know, it's amazing how different it is. If you go to places that have huge history, you know, um, San Francisco Ballet went to Russia to um, uh, perform with the Bolshoi, you mm -hmm. know, at, at the Bolshoi. And we used the Bolshoi Orchestra. But that's the orchestra that all the major Russian conductors and musicians, pianists, soloists mm -hmm. have performed with so many premieres. And I remember I had to go and rehearse <laughs> Prokofiev, Romeo and Juliet, mm -hmm. Shostakovich, Piano Concerto. And, you know, I'm not Russian. Mm -hmm. This is one of the top Russian orchestras with all this history. How could mm -hmm. I possibly try to lead them and have the audacity again to say, <laughs> hey, this is the way we do Shostakovich. Right. So, you know, for the time being, ignore all the history. And it was, it was hilarious, though, because... You know, we had used our parts because, you know, every Romeo and Juliet has their own cuts and markings mm -hmm. and everything. Right, right, right. And the orchestra would come up to me and they say, you know, this is actually a notorious misprint. This is wrong. This note is wrong. This phrasing is actually this. And all of us were eating it up. We're like, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, because even though music is more international nowadays, there's still little divisions about these things. And we don't see the, we don't see the music parts of um, uh, Prokofiev or um, Shostakovich like they do, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, so it is very different. Um, Bernstein, when he was younger and starting to guess with various orchestras, would write in his journal, I just went over another orchestra and I'm just I'm so excited. There's so much incredible music making. I can't wait to work with them again. Mm -hmm. um, I think you learn a lot from the experience. And then, of course, um, um, it's just I get a thrill of being in different circumstances and seeing how people work. 
you know, just like if I'm working with a new um, company, like a dance company or specific people, you know, that are uh, doing ver variations, I like to see how they are on stage, how they respond to things on stage, how aligned they are with the music, or if there's uh, um, tendencies to, you know, in, in performance, the adrenaline to, to move faster or rush or mm -hmm. on second performances, you know, one of my favorite dancers, uh, um, Francis Chung at, at San Francisco Ballet. We love Francis. She love always. <laughs> oh, Franny is so awesome. Yeah. Um, but Very her musical. second performance, her second performance, she always wants faster. And so over the years <laughs> working with her, I just know we don't even have to talk about it anymore. Um, you know, we just move up the tempo for the for the second time going through, and it's just it's like this natural collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, so that drives me, sort of getting to know different partners whether it's different orchestras dancers mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. uh, musicians so let's get some into some of the specifics about what makes conducting for a dance company different from just merely you know in a concert hall um obviously there are you know as much as dancers and certainly you know uh in the 20th century things became more about respecting the music and letting that come first but we just can't usually typically keep up with concert tempo so it do you find that there do mu musicians in the pit for ballet companies come in like okay we understand or is there sometimes tension where it's like this is definitely not what tchaikovsky wanted <laughs> there's there's always tension and it's <laughs> i think it's but it is that this is one of the things that I drives me as um, you know in the profession especially for ballet conducting because Let's say there's, let me just start off with a story. Our mm -hmm. concert master in San Francisco, Cordula Merckx, for, um, for Swan Lake, the uh, potatoes, both uh, white and black, mm -hmm. you know, feature big violin solos. Sure. Mm -hmm. And for White Swan especially, the tempo tends to be slow. And then, of course, the Russian tradition is to do much, much slower. Yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, um, in the U.S., we tend to move it up a little bit. But mm -hmm. if you're in Russia, the tempo is so much slower that they actually add notes to make it work, right? Right. Huh. And so the concertmaster, Cordla, who had not played that much ballet before, um, was going through the solos and just said, you know, these, these tempi are so slow, it doesn't make any sense. And then she saw the choreography and she mm -hmm. said, that's it. I, I completely understand mm -hmm. what the music is about, right? And especially for Tchaikovsky, who is working directly with, you know, um, the choreographers, uh, you know, especially with Sleeping Beauty, for instance. I mean, like, he's just working hand in hand with... Um, mm -hmm. Uh, pretty pot, but, it, but it was one of those things where you realize that this is an art form that involves movement and music. It's not just the music, it's not just the movement, but it's a collaboration mm -hmm. of the two. Right. And what we often say as ballet conductors is that to the orchestra is that it's like you're accompanying a concerto with a major soloist or so, something like that, mm -hmm. but you can't actually hear the soloist. Hmm. Right. And so there has to be a flexibility there, but an understanding that the music is completely different. Um, you know, when you do something, especially of some of the classical works like, like Tchaikovsky with Sleeping Beauty, you know, it was made to have the flexibility to work with the dancers. Mm -hmm. um, and the funny thing is that in opera, we make adjustments of tempo. We cut things. We add music from other things all the time. Hmm. And yet musicians don't have that same sort of, uh, you know, well, they're destroying the music. I mean, <laughs> I was doing this um, opera, um, Lucia de Lammermoor, and it's bel canto and it's all about the soprano. Mm -hmm. She literally can add her own music and say, 
I think this music makes me sound great. I'm going to do this. I want the flute player to add a little bit of trill here and do this. There's that much control. Wow. And that's just completely accepted. Mm-hmm. And then you, you have ballet dancers that say, hey, we're going to make this more into a waltz. Um, you know, um, we're talking with Cynthia Harvey um, about uh, Swan Lake, actually, the, the, um, the white swan um, mm-hmm. um, variation or, the, uh, you know, the... Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, variation and yeah <laughs> and then she was talking about how so one conductor wanted that to actually be like a waltz mm-hmm. and she was just like oh my gosh how am i supposed to do this right you know and it was this thing where there was no collaboration mm-hmm. there wasn't an idea there's sort of an idea of what the music should be but not how you know i mean like you want those developers to be as graceful as possible mm-hmm. and if it looks like you know that it's frantic then it has a completely opposite um um sort of impact on the audience mm-hmm. you know That makes me think, too, that you're not just managing the people in the pit, but you're also kind of working with the dancers as well. So how do you create relationships with them that make them feel like they can come to you and talk to you? Because I know some dancers with conductors, maybe they don't want to say anything or it can be kind of a tense relationship. How do you make yourself approachable to the dancers to discuss these things? Hmm. I think it's the same thing like working with an orchestra and, you know, everybody has their specific roles and jobs and we're just trying to help each other. We try to make the best environment for uh, not only the music, but the dance and the ballet um, possible so that the performance is impactful as, as possible for the audience. And, you know, I think it's just as much as knowing a horn player and how they work and knowing string players and how they work, but also knowing the difficulties and the ins and outs of the variations, the pas de deux, mm-hmm. um, and to the ensemble and to really figuring out what's going to be the best for them. You know, I mean, like, if a dancer doesn't have this much musical background, they might say something like, it just feels really fast. Mm-hmm. But there could be so many different reasons why and sort of interpreting why. Is it we didn't have enough time for them to get to the corner, so they just started from behind. They were behind the music at every single point, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Or is it the music is exactly the right tempo, but it's not the right feeling, so it's not really helping, and it sort of it becomes a little bit lugubrious and sort of weighed down. But we can change that mm-hmm. with the way we play, the articulation, and the way the musicians approach the music. Or is it that the music was actually just too fast and we have to slow it down, right? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But it could be any of those things. And so it's, I think, understanding and developing a trust to say, if that's what it feels like, how can we make it feel better? What we can do to make sure that, you know, like Fuertes, if you're doing, you know, Black Swan, you know, Coda or something like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, like people have their different, um, you know, ideas of what they're going to be trying to do in the pirouettes but on the second side of that if they're tired and they switch to singles that's that's actually a completely different tempo some not a completely different tempo but it's a slightly different enough tempo Mm -hmm. that we can actually make the minute adjustment where the audience doesn't feel it but the dancer whoever's dancing will actually feel that and feel a little bit better right amazing um and we make those connections in split second decisions with Mm -hmm. opera singers and soloists all the t- well within the mm-hmm. orchestra if somebody has a solo all the time if an opera singer suddenly is you can tell but the audience can't tell but if you can tell that they're running out of breath a little bit mm-hmm. you want you need to push the tempo a little bit faster or they just came out of a phenomenal long note and they need to take a longer breath before the next phrase starts all of those things are sort of a more intimate collaboration mm-hmm. than just trying to hit a certain tempo 
Mm-hmm. And for me, I think ballet conducting suffers because there are so many people that are just trying to hit a tempo and aren't really caring about that sort of second by second collaboration where you're not sort of destroying the integrity of the music, but you are making the slight adjustments that actually facilitate a better environment for, again, for the, for the ballet in general, you know? Right. Why do we think that is? Is it, do you think it's, does it have anything to do with maybe the fact that ballet music pre-Tchaikovsky wasn't terribly highbrow and then it took a while for the respect to catch up? You know, I was I think thinking, so. yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I, I mean, I think so. I think that there's also a lot of musicians and dancers too have perceptions about the music. And if you have music that was composed before it became a ballet, mm-hmm. they bring a lot of those conceptions sure. there. And the biggest explanation for dancers I talk about is Justin Peck's Rodeo. Mm-hmm. Because you have, you know, the original Rodeo that everybody has in their mind. Mm-hmm. And then you have Justin Peck who comes to the music and says, look, I'm just going to take away all the programmatic aspects to it. There's going to be no story. You know, there's going to be no set. It's going to be um, just pure dance and connecting to the music. And every single dancer that I spoke to, well, not every single one, but many dancers were just like, you know, it's really beautiful, but I just can't get the original out of my head. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just, it's not quite the same. And so you have musicians that do the same too. You know, like every string player, especially knows Tchaikovsky Serenade, you know, or mm-hmm. they actually call it Serenade, right? Right. And then you have the ballet version and the, the movements are switched just because obviously, as you know, I mean, like it's just originally only three movements. And so we added the fourth movement. We still want mm-hmm. to end with the elegy, but mm-hmm. you know, musicians like, why would you just you know, change the order of the movements? You know, instead of ending on a high, you end with this like really, you know, um, dirge of some sort and you know for the dance you know like well there's a very clear history right you know i mean like you know folkheim's you know version of uros had three movements he was balancing was copying that and then he added the fourth movement to do you know when he was in russia with the company and then mm-hmm. you know i mean like you have you have a sort of history of that and then of course the elegy is one of the most iconic you know ending that mm-hmm. has the most touching ending whether because i mean everybody has their version of what it means to them whether there's right. no meaning or, you know I mean, like, and so there's a very clear reason why the ballet is set up like that. Right. And if you're a musician that says, you know, but Tchaikovsky wrote it like this, you have to understand just like, you know, and like Andrew Lynn always says, I mean, like it's a different piece now. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different piece. It's a different artwork now. I mean, and so form of art. And so that has to be taken into account. Um, Bernstein also going back to Bernstein when he was writing for his first film. And I honestly don't remember what it was, but he had written all the music and he understood that the filmmakers were going to take that music and adjust it for mm-hmm. the film. And he said to himself, he said in his journals again, I understand what they're doing and I understand that's what the art form is, but my heart is on the floor, you know, mm-hmm. as if it's being cut up uh, like my music is. And, you know I mean? Like, but he understood that's what it is. Right. You know what I mean? Like that's exactly how it is. Um, oddly, Prokofiev had a piece, um, Alexander Nevsky, that he wrote the music and then the filmmakers adjusted everything to the music, which was the uh, only case that I've ever seen it like that. But I think that just the, like when it comes down to it, it's just the fact that ballet is a combination of the mu- movement of music. Mm-hmm. And just like if you have different choreography, that you're going to have different approaches to the music, then you just have to understand that, you know, even within music, musicians know that there are different approaches to the styles, whether you're going right. to do Bach in the style of a huge orchestra or the original small performances. And so I think it's just understanding that this is a collaboration 
and we want to have the most impactful performance and if you sacrifice the dance for the music or vice versa you know that's that's a tragedy it really is sort of finding that middle ground that is best for both sides right mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just all of this is so fascinating to mm-hmm. me. I love to hear this. I had never even thought about changing the music, like the tempo just a little bit while the dancers are dancing. I, I mean, it just goes back to your background in dance and how much that can inform you. And also in singing, like you're talking about with opera, I think it's so fascinating and I love it. Is there a specific piece of music that you really love to, or a ballet that you really love to conduct? Um, Serenade, of course, because mm-hmm. it's like one of the most gorgeous pieces. And I find so much senti- sentimentality into it, obviously, mm-hmm. because I feel like it's sort of like this history of, of New York City Ballet sort of encapsulated in a single, in a single piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Sleeping Beauty because it's one of the most technically challenging ballets to conduct as a conductor. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many variations, so many different dancers from night to night, you know, um, and obviously every single one of the dancers are different. So you're not going to be approaching the music the same every single time. And I really feel like it's one of those times where you really need to know the, the dancers really need to know their tendencies, really need to know, um, you know, um, how the music can be adjusted or not. Um, so I love that. Romeo and Juliet is one of my favorite scores of all times. Yeah. Um, and I think that seeing, you know, the very ending scene, you know, Juliet mm-hmm. in the tomb, um, it's hard to not, I don't think there's ever been a time where I haven't been emotionally mm-hmm. affected by that. Mm-hmm. The end. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Every single piece has its something special about it. And I think that's, um, you know, the same question. Sometimes people ask me, what's your favorite piece, you know, it's to conduct ever. Too hard. And <laughs> it's like, what are, what's your working, what are you working on? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are pieces of Stravinsky that we would, never we are rarely done like agon as a piece of music by itself it's really rarely performed on the concert stage Mm -hmm. but as a ballet it's fantastic it's you know it's especially you know uh some of the you know potatoes are so bizarre and everything Mm -hmm. but this is somehow it elevates the entire thing you know right um so i really feel like it's it's what I'm working on, which is why right now during COVID time, I'm especially, <laughs> um, it's especially difficult to be able to not be able to collaborate in that manner. Right. Yeah. We will return to conversations on dance in a moment, but first we want to introduce you to the newest venture from choreographer and friend of the pod, Trey McIntyre. Trey has put together an innovative way to access new dance films created by world-class artists via Patreon. Welcome to Flatpak. Flatpak is an online subscription service that gives viewers access to one-of-a-kind original dance works created by dance makers from all around the world. Access to these works is exclusive to Flatpak's Patreon platform. Each month, subscribers to Flatpak's Patreon page will get access to two world premiere dance films every other Friday night, as well as immersive behind-the-scenes content. You can join now for as little as $1 per film by visiting fltpk.com or clicking the link in the description of this episode. Money raised for each film goes directly to the artists involved in the creation of the film. If you want to hear more, 
listen to our most recent interview with Trey in episode 194, where he tells us how this idea came about and his overall vision for the platform. So what are some of the ways in which you've been trying to feed yourself artistically in this time where live performance is all but impossible? We, um, right now, orchestras are trying to sneak back into performances. The tragedy is that because wind instruments and brass instruments use so much air, Mm -hmm. they're starting with strings only. But I actually did give a concert last week that had uh, Serenade for Strings, the Tchaikovsky Mm -hmm. on it. Um, Uh. And so that was a bizarre experience. It had been six months since I last conducted a concert. And wow. uh, so that was a bizarre experience, I think also for the, for the musicians too. Mm-hmm. But I started the series called Musical Points, uh, points spelled uh, with an E like uh, for ballet. Naturally. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it grew out of two, <laughs> two reasons. One was this idea that we've been talking about a little bit, that each ballet is really special in getting at the heart of what makes that ballet what it is and mm-hmm. a lasting, impactful uh, piece of the repertoire. But also, because of what you just said, I actually just miss talking with my colleagues about this. And right. we, we used to chat in the hallways all the time or in the studios, in the orchestra, um, in, in the orchestra pit. And this is an opportunity for, uh, for all of us to get together and really dive into some of those details. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for instance, um, last week we actually talked with, about Swan Lake with, uh, um, with Cynthia Harvey, the mm-hmm. director of the ABT school, mm-hmm. and David LaMarche, who's the conductor at ABT, and um, the history of Swan Lake and how it was a terrible opening, you know, um, um, like a, a really uh, disastrous premiere. Mm-hmm. And now it's suddenly it's over time, it's become one of our most beloved ballets, but why? And really looking at how ballerinas mm-hmm. approach the step, step, how much variety there is, mm-hmm. you know, just like I was talking about Lucia de Lamamore and how the soprano um, has a lot of flexibility, but every single production besides, you know, Petipa's, um, Petipa's um, approach, you know, like core steps and everything, mm-hmm. each a person's production can have a lot of variety and then right. every single ballerina and couple can actually have their own slight variations on these things and mm-hmm. how they approach these things. Um, and so um, it's just, a, it's, it seems like a showcase um, for individuality and, and character. Um, whereas for Romeo and Juliet, we're talking with Hermano um, Florio, who's the music director at Houston, but he was also music director at ABT and Het national uh, Dutch mm-hmm. national um, he's talking about how Prokofiev writes in Juliet's character development. You know, mm-hmm. you can tell from her theme what she's thinking, mm-hmm. like literally, the, the, you know, the, when she's disagreeing with her parents and just defiant or she actually makes a decision to, you know, take fake poison and, you know, um, um, pretend to be dead, etc. Mm-hmm. You can hear that directly in the music. And then you can hear, you can see how different... Um, choreographers have taken that music and done that. And I think, um, uh, I actually don't know it that well, but I think the Ashton version, when she decides there's, there's this tremendous music, da, 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 she makes this, she makes a decision to, again, go through the whole plot with Fire Lawrence to mm-hmm. take the poison, uh, take the fake poison, pretend to be dead. And then um, that's when the letter goes to Romeo. But Ashton's version is she does nothing. She sits on the bed and you, she just, you can tell she's in her thoughts mm-hmm. and you let the music take over at that point. 
Hmm. And it's like this brilliance of, you know, like hearing her inner thoughts, nice. literally, and not needing to portray that physically because it's at that point portraying it physically is her in her head, mm-hmm. in her thoughts on the bed. Right. Hmm. And so, you know, I think that getting to the heart of what these ballet is about, like whether it's Sleeping Beauty being the epitome of classical dance, you know, mm-hmm. as many variations as possible, the direct connection between movement and music from its very creation, you know, uh, collaborating um, and continuing today with, you know, different companies, different productions, different dancers, mm-hmm. um, you know, Serenade, the history that we talked about, or Violin Concerto and um, Balanchine writing in, um, sorry, choreography, uh, uh, creating choreography that references uh, Igor Stravinsky's difficulties with his wife and his mm-hmm. mistress. You know, I mean, I think mm-hmm. that all these things get at to what the ballets are really about. And we don't talk about that as much, I think, um, or have the opportunity to because we just don't have enough time. Mm-hmm. So not only do I miss that, but it's an opportunity, I think, for patrons to actually sort of get at that essence too. Right. I love that you brought up the the violin concerto story. I didn't know that at all. And I always, I mean, the second aria, you just have this sense of um, like, there is something sad about it, or there's a, you know, there's a dynamic and you can't quite put your finger on it. Um, but it's like Stravinsky's written it in, into the score and then balancing by reflecting the score can, puts that story into the ballet yeah, and it's it's funny because, you know, Bart Cook has this fantastic thing. I think he said it with uh, Dutch National, and they put up some videos of him talking about it. Mm-hmm. But he was talking about that idea of dependency. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Stravinsky and his uh, first wife, Catherine, or Katya, I mean, like, however, um, it's, like, listed four different ways. But, um, <laughs> you know, they, they knew each other from when they were really young. Mm-hmm. And so it was almost inevitable that they were going to be married. Mm-hmm. and um, And so when she started getting sick and, you know, he had a mistress and everything, um, you know, there's a slightly difficult time, but Balanchine knew about it. And so Bart talks about this idea of dependency. And then when you have that idea looking at the ballet and you can see, I mean, like there's so many times where he, like she bends down on her knees and he catches her, mm-hmm. you know, and um, actually holds her up and, you know, like she lays across uh, right. uh, her, her back upon him and everything. Mm-hmm. It has a, such a completely different impact. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I mean, like there is, you know immediately, you, you have this feeling that you get from the ballet. And that's what the, obviously the brilliance of like ballet is, like these movements that portray certain emotions. And then you realize if you, so if just from that level, it has impact, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the greats. But then you know, I mean, when you know some of the background, all of a sudden it has, there's such poignancy there. And then it, it has sort of this deeper impact. It's the same thing for Sarnad. You know, like everywhere you read, Balanchine says, there's no story. What, what story mm-hmm. do you need for this? There's no story. And you're just like, she's clearly either going to heaven or she died. I mean, like, mm-hmm. I mean, like there's, there's so many people that are just like, that's just, I mean, and it says elegy. How can, mm-hmm. how can <laughs> right. you uh, um, say that there's no story? Right. But it's just that the fact that all these movements give this, uh, this, this portray a certain um, like set of moods, set of emotions, and they have such impact that I think that's what the brilliance of Serenade is. You know, mm-hmm. he was still testing out, like he says, how the ballerinas were supposed to be on stage. I just wanted to give them something to know what it's like to, to learn how to be on stage. And so um, whether it's just, you know, first position, opening up the very first thing, the porter, you know, porter bras, um, you know, um, at one point, there was actually the 32 Fuentes. They actually did 32 Fuentes, which I can't even imagine. But I mean, um, 
that's not there now, obviously, but, um, you know, the impression that you get from it is so tender, Mm -hmm. so sweet. And it's just about the combinations of all these movements that give that portrayal, whatever, you know, story you create in the background. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, these ballets are, especially for, obviously, for we who are in the business, have such importance to us. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's especially important to be excited about it and to tell people why I get excited about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that instead of doing appreciation, which is Stravinsky had this great quote, music appreciation is too much about appreciation. Appreciation is not about the music. Right. It needs to be more about the music, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you tell people why Serenade is so beautiful, like at, in the first time I saw Serenade and they open up the first position, I thought the mm-hmm. gesture was really abrupt. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you have this beautiful lyrical melody mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, Koo! and <laughs> I was just like, and sometimes, you know, like it's not the quietest thing, you know, mm-hmm. still, it's still on top shoes. I mean, like uh, point shoes and, um, and I didn't quite understand it. And then you read that first quote. There's just that, um, I forgot who it was. was it the Metallica? Graham quote? Or is it, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where she's like, there's the most touching thing because that's the first thing that you do, you know, like you learn, mm-hmm. uh-huh. you know, and then understanding that and then feeling like, okay, the very first things that is, are in the ballet, the fact that it's the very first ballet that Balanchine choreographed in America, you know, all of a sudden there's all these connections that actually um, um, are tied to that gesture that make mm-hmm. it so much more uh, touching. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Sarah not, I mean, like the hair coming down, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, it's also that was, good. Like, in the 70s, <laughs> you know, um, it's so strange that happened so late. Like now it's such a, like a, I mean, I've never s- seen the ballet performed with, in, in, with the elegy having the hair up, but that was like, it's life, you know, Balanchine yeah. changed it in the mid seventies or maybe early to mid seventies. And that's how we perceive it forever now. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, I think he was experimenting. I think, you know, I, I think, did you guys talk to Alistair? I think, yeah. you, um, mm-hmm. But because um, he obviously did that, what, three-day symposium? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Not. But he was talking about, I think he found some archival footage where the hair was down for a day. Mm-hmm. And then the next day it was back, back up. up. And he was clearly like sort of experimenting. But you're right. You know, I mean, like just, you know, like it was such a late change. But I think for me, it's especially touching because you don't realize sometimes how long ballerina's hair is, you know, hair is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when you see that, it's a very striking moment because it doesn't look um, like something you see every day. Mm-hmm. And then when you bring in the flow of the, you know, like the flow of, um, of the hair and now the costumes have the same, I think to me, mm-hmm. um, sort of movement to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes very um, part of the aesthetic I think yeah. that's impactful. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about what other upcoming musical points you have and how people can watch them if they want to? Sure. They're all Zoom. And my website has the link that goes directly to them. It's just mingluke.com. But this week we're doing the one with Amaro, uh, um, Romano Florio mm-hmm. um, and Sophia and Silv, who is, is now in Dresden, but she was principal of New York City Ballet, San Francisco, and Tet National at all different points. Mm-hmm. Um, but talking about Romeo and Juliet and the progression of themes, because, you know, it's also the first time, well, not the first time, but, you know, one of the really big transitions away from uh, fantasy stories, right? Because you have Tchaikovsky with 
you know, fantastic characters. But when Prokofiev goes into realism, the mime changes. It's not symbolic mime. It's really just real, you know, real acting. Um, that's not based directly on just um, uh, certain uh, of repertoire of movements in mime, but also um, the way that the music is approached. Um, it's really great, but it's going to be 12 noon Pacific time on Saturdays. And so we're at uh, the last two, there is, um, no, the last three. Um, the week after that is uh, National Ballet of Canada with The Winter's Tale, mm-hmm. Shakespeare play that was turned into ballet. But it was very much like we've been talking about. The genesis was from how the drama can be tr- portrayed in music and movement from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so the music and the movement the choreography were created in collaboration to try to highlight the dance and really do a fantastic storytelling. And then the final one is Nutcracker, which you might think it's like, oh, everybody knows Nutcracker, you know, back and forth. But, you know, like these, I think within traditions, sometimes we actually overlook what's at the heart of the, the ballet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like Tchaikovsky was, was by, well, I guess trilingual because he also learned new German, but he grew up half French, right? His mother was mm-hmm. French. And so there's all these French folk songs in Nutcracker. Oh, wow. You know? mm-hmm. And so we're actually going to be playing them. I think like uh, um, Mother Ginger is like uh, um, a Basque tune, I think, if I, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly, and actually playing mm-hmm. some of them. And they sound, sound bizarre because you're just like, that's so familiar. And yet it's a completely <laughs> different mood, you know, because right. it's still huh. through the Tchaikovsky lens mm-hmm. of like Russian imperial huge orchestra. But, you mm-hmm. know, originally it's just sort of like a street dance. Um, but we're the last ones we had were, um, you know, Sleeping Beauty, uh, Swan Lake and um, what was the last one? Oh, then of course Serenade and Violent mm-hmm. Concerto. Mm-hmm. But um, we're thinking about doing more. Um, the Met Opera just announced that they're canceling this right. entire season. And you know, mm-hmm. even though San Francisco Ballet has a season uh, that starts in January, they're cutting out Nutcrackers. There's obviously contingency plans, I'm sure, to mm-hmm. make it all virtual. So if this is a means for us to uh, dive into the repertoire like this. I think he'll be, uh, um, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, Andrew Lydon, when we did Serenade, he's just like, he said, I've been looking forward to this all week. I've done nothing this Aww. week. Except drink. <laughs> <laughs> we all Wait, need it. I have a really silly question, but is there a term like, you know, for ballet nerds, we call ourselves bunheads. Like what are, what's a, a music nerd? What do you guys call yeah, yourself? We don't, we don't, um, um, <laughs> We have choir geeks, but we don't have anything for orchestra. Uh-huh. You know, it's funny because within the orchestra, like we talked about at the beginning, there are so many different instruments. Right. And mm-hmm. so certain instruments have their stereotypical um, personalities. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, double reed players, the oboes and the bassoons, they spend more time making their reeds um, than they do, you know, practicing. And so <laughs> they're usually in a hole, like moles, you know, just like carving mm-hmm. out reeds and whatnot. And the flute players and harpists are tend to be, you know, they shine. So they have like the most up-to-date websites that have glamour shots that are, you know, uh-huh. they're, they're, um, and there's these harp conventions that are bizarre, you know, well, they're fantastic, but um, sure. there's their own world of, of mm-hmm. harps um, and violas <laughs> versus violins. But in terms of orchestra, you know, there's not, unfortunately, there's no, we have to make some sort of gotta, you know, term for people that really geek out about like the low B flat in uh-huh. you know, planets that the, uh, that the <laughs> you know, trombones play, you know, I mean, bass trombone play. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, there's, there's no, there's no butthead for, for orchestra. We got to well, get on that. We're going to coin it. Yeah. We're going to come up with something clever. <laughs> yeah. TBP. Or we can employ a Gen Z person. They're good at this. They can come up with something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So before we let you go, we just have one last little thing for you that we call our lightning round. And we were excited for this one to make it 
music centric. Um, so just, we're going to ask you one question and you let us know the first thing that pops into mind. Um, is there a company that you would like to conduct for who you have not yet gotten the chance to? Uh, New York city ballet, Andrew. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love, you know, like for me, um, to actually conduct Bolshoi dancers and mm-hmm. Paris and London, I think the centers of dance, because right. like we talked about orchestras, they have completely different qualities mm-hmm. um, and they have different traditions. I love to know, like Radomanski has been doing about unearthing like sort of the original um, Pitapa or Petipa right. um, um, versions of, of dance, but also to go through and conduct the slower tempos in Russia. New York, mm-hmm. City, da- New York City Ballet is exactly the opposite. Right. Mm-hmm. The fastest tempo that you can get around. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the, the, the major centers of dance, but um, yeah. Okay. Uh, what's the hardest score for you to conduct for uh, of a ballet? Uh, either John Adams works mm-hmm. um, or uh, things like Sleeping Beauty. I think the challenge of Sleeping Beauty is so fantastic. It's, it's hard in a technical way, like we talked about, mm-hmm. because there's different characters, different dancers, and so many different variations. But the technical aspect of it is really thrilling when you really get these things um, to, to line up and, mm-hmm. and feel like you're making music at the same time. Right. What is your favorite ballet to watch? Sorry, not. <laughs> That's an easy I one. <laughs> um, the last the, one we didn't really get, I, we didn't get into it as much as I wanted, but. The last, yeah, this last, last question. Lightning. Yeah. Well, I, we were going to talk more about that. You've also done some solo piano work. So has there been a pr- specific score or performance that you have performed a solo piano for that was particularly fun? Um, the San Francisco Ballet for the galas, obviously it's like a slew of pas de deux solo, uh, solos and maybe a couple of um, ensemble works. But uh, Val Canaparoli, um, uh did this work um, uh, which featured solo piano mm-hmm. uh, as jazz isn't it romantic, but uh, they asked me to play the solo jazz part. And I love jazz so much, but I have no training in it whatsoever. Uh-huh. You know? And so I can't improvise, but if you put the music in front of me, um, that's great. And for, for this particular ballet, it was perfect because the music was all written out. So I had a really fun time doing that. But for another gala, for another gala there's this piece I actually don't remember, um, but Tanwan um, uh, um Y.Y., Mm-hmm. Uh, and who is uh, a principal at San Francisco Ballet. Um, it was a work that she danced, a pas de deux with her, where um, the pianist um, is portrayed getting up and dancing and then comes back to the piano, and she mm-hmm. comes to the piano. And I was the one playing, and so you know somebody else basically um, pretends like they, they go off and they have this pas de deux and whatnot. But playing on the stage there while also collaborating with, with YY um, was especially uh, fun because it was a direct visual and music connection that I think the audience gets to see too. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously written into the choreography, but to see, I think, what we do in the pit actually be on stage to figure out the timing, collaborate on a deeper level than just mm-hmm. Tempe, I think was a lot of fun. Um, so I think, yeah. <laughs> I miss doing that. I don't play I piano know. as much as I get to. So this is making me miss live theater so much. Like we weren't already, you know. <laughs> I'm just thinking that all the serenade talk has just got me thinking about like, can, like imagine what our first serenade back is going to be like. Yeah, it's going to be Give so special. 
<laughs> you know, it's, um, you know, it's funny. Um, those last musical points we were talking with Andrew Lydon and he, just like that ballet was kept on evolving. There was this performance, I think from 1976 that he saw in Canada where the end of the first movement into waltz girl, there's, you know, like there's this huge chord and she mm-hmm. gives this dip that uh, they right. traditionally do now. Right. Mm-hmm. And that had been completely cut out. Mm-hmm. It basically, the, the, um, the waltz had such a soft start to it. And because of that last chord before the waltz started was taken out, it was just this very tender, you know, um, the, the guy walks up to the girl and that's mm. it. And then they start the waltz and it was a completely different feeling. And so Andrew Lynn said, let's try it. Let's try it. There's evidence that he did it. Uh-huh. So we're going to go through and do it. But then um, Balanchine Foundation actually gave them the license to try it out in performance. Cool. Which was really cool. And then so uh, um, I'm sure Alistair probably saw the performance. He's just like, what is going on? <laughs> uh, but, um, but um uh, it was one of those things where they came back and they said, you know what? We really want it to be the last iteration of mm-hmm, what Balanchine right. had. But, yeah. um, you know, no doubt that, like you said, you know, they we're coming back to it. I think uh, seeing Sarnad, um, oh, that's going to be really touching. Just the curtain mm-hmm. opening, you know. It's the best ballet ever, you know. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting with us. This was so wonderful and totally enlightening for us. We and loved we it. will all be tuning in yes. um, because I, there are some things I want to know. Like I want to know about, I'm really, I hope I can make the Romeo and Juliet episode because, or event moment that we're having <laughs> because uh, in Russia at some point it had a happy ending, right? I don't I can't reconcile that musically. You he know, didn't write it, did he? He wrote it originally because uh, Prokofiev was uh, a Christian scientist that didn't believe that death was a tragic thing. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. he, and then his other comment that is directly ap- attributed to Prokofiev is that he said, dead people don't dance. And this is about <laughs> it. <laughs> but uh, um, he choreographed his happy ending and Juliet just re- is revived at the end. But it's bizarre because half of it is still the same music. Right. So the music that is the last part when she wakes up, kills herself, you know, finds Romeo and mm-hmm. Paris dead and kills herself is the same music as when she wakes up and is happy. Mm-hmm. And it's this hmm. bizarre, you look at this music and you're like, how could it have two completely different emotional contexts? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's the most tragic music, but in reality, it actually is C major, like the purest right. of keys and everything right, right, right. but um he took some music from prokof uh, sorry yeah his own uh, uh symphony five and eventually used it for that but of all people it was stalin that went to see it and you know also the director of the courts uh, the ballet um the theaters mm-hmm. at the time that said uh you, you should probably stick with shakespeare's original ending just and so he up. just yeah <laughs> but um mark morris has a production where he actually choreographed right yeah i didn't know that the original yeah. ending and yeah. so it's, um, um, but the music's great. Um, but, but Hermano is such, of talking about, you know, like music nerds, it's, it's fantastic. He went through, he has 27 examples about how the music is changes over time as Juliet and, and um, the various characters, you know, character and mindset changes. Mm-hmm. It's really, a, um, it's really fantastic. And he has this hypothesis about key relationships and, and, um, you know, Romeo and Juliet uh, are different keys and they come together and then they're apart. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's really fascinating. It's, it's um, yeah, so Saturday is 12 noon. 
Saturday so at my 12. website. You just have to register for it. Completely free. And it's a donation. Um, any funds, they're free, but mm-hmm. people decide to donate. It's a donation to the companies involved. Wonderful. So. Nice. Are they available after the fact or only uh, at the lifetime? I think we're doing it only uh, at the, the live session. Mm-hmm. Um, we just have to clear. I mean, we do have fair, uh, uh, fair use of the clips because it's all educational. Mm-hmm. But um, um, I think a lot of editing has to be done to get it prepared for streaming. But right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Wonderful. We'll be sure well, to tune in. Thanks so much. I can't wait till Saturday. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for having me. This is, this is, again, it's stirring up all the desire for performance and, mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. So I appreciate yeah. that and love to talk to you with you guys too. So. Lovely talking to you. Yes. Thank you for joining us this week. If you would like to support the conversations on dance podcasts, there are a few ways that you can help click over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Download episodes when you listen to allow our analytics to better understand our listenership. Join our Facebook group, Conversations on Dance, Friends of the Pod, or you can offer a donation. Conversations on Dance has always been and will always be free to our listeners. You can help us continue to create and produce this unique behind-the-curtain look at the dance world by visiting conversationsondancepod.com support. Thank you for tuning in. See you next week. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher. Because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW.